0: Welcome this morning, um, and you guys know me. I'm Elisa Enriquez. Um, we're very excited social justice committee, um, and specifically Kate Carduño-King, who moved away um, just less than a month ago, um, is the reason that we're able to have two wonderful speakers this morning. Um, Kate Carduño-King contacted the New Mexico Faith Coalition uh, on or for, for immigrant <laughs> justice. It's very long. Um, we have Daniel Vega, who's a coordinator of outreach, uh, and we have Melina Juarez um, here as well. She's a volunteer. I'm going to let them go ahead and get started um, to talk about the program.
1: Well, hello everyone. Good morning. Uh, it was a really nice ride up here. It's it's beautiful up here. So, and thank you so much for having us and giving us this space. Um, so uh, I guess I should introduce myself. My name is Daniel Vega. Uh, I am an undocumented immigrant from Chihuahua. I work as a community organizer for the New Mexico Faith Coalition for Immigrant Justice. And um, of all, out of all the things that we do, all the projects that we're doing, um, I, I do all this because of my own experience as an immigrant. And and I think it, you know more than that, it's a, it's a moral call um, because it's wrong. What's a lot of what's going on and and. Uh, we need to do as much as we can. And so I'd like to introduce my other speaker, and if you can talk just a little Mm -hmm. bit about yourself as well. Um, uh, Wonderful uh, volunteer, uh, Melina Juarez.
2: Mm -hmm. Thank you, and thank you, Elisa. Thank you to to everybody um, for having us here. Um, Like Melisa said, my name is Melina Juarez. I'm a PhD candidate in political science at the University of New Mexico, and I specialize in immigration law and Latino politics.
1: So, Kik Ardugio and Elisa reached out to us. And um, so I know there's been talks here at at the uh, Unitarian Church about maybe possibly becoming a sanctuary, that there has been some uh, discussions going on. And so um, that's what I'm here to talk about. And what I would like to uh, highlight, and this is something very important, is to, if we we are going to talk about uh, sanctuary, about a congregation becoming a sanctuary, why somebody needs sanctuary, we need to talk about the immigrant reality, the hardships that an immigrant family is facing, and the situation in the country, here and back in their native countries, to really understand why sanctuary is necessary. And I take the um, the words from Allison Harrington, um, uh, a famous, popular pastor in uh, South Southside Presbyterian Church, uh, the first church to start the sanctuary movement back in the 80s, and she's a Korean pastor there now, and she, she had a story that there was a congregation that wanted to be uh, sanctuary, and they had, and they were discussing it for a long time, and when they finally were sanctuary, they were celebrating amongst each other, but in the corner, there was a family crying, and so that's the reality of, 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 uh, of the century and so I'd like to hand it over to Melina to start us off with the what is the current state of immigration look like?
2: Thank you. So to start we need to ask the question, what is the role of immigration policy? And so immigration laws are there to help codify what the American nation is supposed to look like. So this means that anybody that doesn't fit the ideals of the ideologies on which the American nation are built on, so white supremacy, settler colonialism, capitalism, whoever doesn't fit into these molds are excluded from the nation. So when we think about the current immigration system and the way that it represses people of color today, we can't forget that these patterns of systemic violence have been present throughout the whole history of the United States. And so a lot of people, for example, are familiar with the Chinese Exclusion Act. But there's really, there's been a lot of laws throughout the decades and the centuries that have excluded people based on uh, different characteristics. So for example, people of different ideologies like anarchists or even polygamists, um, Asian women, people with different diseases, including mental health conditions, all of these folks have been excluded um, throughout the decades. And now with the quota systems that were in place before, people from certain countries were also barred from entering. And so when we craft immigration policies in this manner, where it's excluding people that don't fit this idea, the reality is that we're enforcing current borders and ways of being that were not there thousands of years ago up into the mid-20th century. And so this also denies the current immigration policies, deny the role of U.S. foreign policy and labor policy um, in creating migrants in the first place. So when we think about the current immigration patterns, we have to go back to the 50s and the 60s when we saw a large amount of Mexican workers that were shipped over through the Bracero program. Um, So these workers were brought in, and when their permits expires, they were sent back. And those that overstayed were taken out and excluded from the system through things like the Operation Wetback that rounded up a lot of Mexican immigrants to take them back. And so what's important about these programs is that those folks that did overstay their visas created these networks, these communities that later served as networks of migration. So for example, my abuelo Jesus came as a bracero in the 1950s, he overstayed his visa and actually became a US citizen. So he stayed in the same town where he was brought and so my family still lives in that same town. So these migration networks are really important, really important context to understand current migration patterns.
1: Yeah, and when I when I came here to the U.S. again, when I was nine years old, and I came through because my grandparents own a, a business in Santa Fe, and so they came to Santa Fe because people that they knew were already in Santa Fe. It's the um, the long history of migration uh, here to from parts of Mexico to parts of the Southwest United States. It's this long um, uh, uh, history of of uh, shared culture and space, and we cannot forget that um, that um, that. That this 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 was Mexico at one point, and we have a long uh, relationship with uh, the language and the culture here, and we cannot just impose a border and and think that you know everything's going to be separate. Um, and uh mm-hmm. going to talk to us about the uh, 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 more about the modern state, which comes from the uh, from the '80s, mm-hmm. uh, the and the new century movement.
2: Yeah. So when you fast forward to the '80s. We see the effects of the Cold War, right, through these hot proxy wars in Central and South America. And so the US is known to have funded uh, paramilitaries and dictatorships that really were responsible for mass violence against their own people, even genocide against indigenous peoples. And so one of the most well-known conflicts is the Civil War in El Salvador, which went on from 1980 to 1991. And so the U.S. was involved in perpetuating the violence there. And so when you look at the consequences of that war, we saw over two million people that were displaced from El Salvador, and that's about 40% of their population. So that's a huge amount of people, and a lot of those folks came to the U.S., because of these different, um, the, the relationship that existed between the US and Central and South America. And some of these folks that came here ended up getting temporary protection status or TPS or being political asylees. And that's not because the US government was acknowledging their role or saying sorry, but it was because of grassroots mobilization uh, by folks like us um, in this room that really fought for the rights of those refugees.
1: And uh, through the uh, Central American Civil War, we can see the the huge displacements of people and that's really where the sanctuary movement started in the eighties when there was a lot of people um, through um, conscientious actions that they sought to uh, to have shelter for people that were fleeing fleeing violence in their countries and it was in uh, through uh, the the first church uh, uh, south south Presbyterian Church in Tucson Arizona where the, there was the first sanctuary and um, And uh, it's it's different. the The sanctuary movement back then and the sanctuary movement now is different. Uh, People that were congregations that were providing sanctuary back then, they were providing it for people that had no connections here. Uh, They were they were coming uh, and with the the clothes that they had on their back. And but the sanctuary movement now is more about the people that are already here, that have been here for decades, that have family connections. and so that uh, temporary protection status, which is TPS, and you may be hearing that a lot in the news, that came from the 80s, but through the current administration that wants to be taken away. And so this, the people that will be affected by this is going to be the people that came here uh, on the 80s uh, and that have been here for 20, 30 years and are, slowly, are suddenly going to be uh, at risk of deportation um, just because of the, uh, of the new administration. And, um, and the problems that we, that we face now, and, and yeah, and so in uh, something that, I, that I'd like to clarify is that uh, deportation has always been a problem in the United States, and uh, actually the, the last administration, Obama, his nickname was Deporter-in-Chief. He deported more people than any other president in the United States. So this is not a new problem with the, with the new president, but it, it does, the, the hostility and aggressiveness in which it's happening is completely different now uh, our communities live in fear, and, um, but, they, but law-wise, that has been happening since, uh, since a long time. And, uh, and actually, some of, the, uh, some of the really bad laws that we have when it comes to immigration came from the Clinton administration, and uh, Melina's going to talk to us a little bit about that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when we think about um, immigrants today, a huge amount of them, about 60%, a little bit over 60%, are from Mexico. And so when we look at that group specifically, we have to go back to the 1990s. So they came in the 50s and 60s as braceros, but then in the 1990s, that's when the huge wave of Mexicans came in. And so what you can tie that back to is in 1994, the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, NAFTA, which was signed between Mexico, the US, and Canada. And basically, what it did was neoliberal reforms completely disrupted the social, economic, and political landscape of Mexico, and it uprooted a a lot of people. So, one of the things that NAFTA did was it created land reform. So, after the Mexican Revolution, there were um, the big land blocks owned by um, by basically I don't know what they would call the oligarchs that ran what was that (laughs) the oligarchs that ran Mexico and owned. Uh, All this land was broken up into ejidos and given to communities. And so NAFTA broke up those ejidos and privatized the land. So communal land was privatized, and that disrupted the agrarian society that was in many parts of Mexico. So what ended up happening was that since 1994 and those neoliberal reforms, you had half a million Mexicans leaving Mexico from 1994 till the early 2000s. So that's a huge amount of people that were were leaving uh, the U.S. And so... because of these huge migrations that we were seeing in the 1990s, there was this call again for immigration reform. And so even though we had Reagan's amnesty in the 1980s, the late 1980s, the Clinton administration's reforms were actually a lot more punitive. Um, And so there's three central pieces of legislation that I want to go over that are really key in understanding the current deportation and detention complex that we have. So of these first ones, and these were all passed in 1996, The first one is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Now, that doesn't seem like it has anything to do with immigration, right? But actually, what it did is that it said that anybody, any immigrant that has committed a crime must be detained. So that wasn't the case before. Before, we had very few immigrant detention centers and very few immigrants that were being detained. But now this law is saying if you've committed a crime, you must be detained. The second law is the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. Irira and that one is directly tied to immigration and it's one of the most well-known ones and what this law did was that it extended the list of crimes that could get you deported so now there's more crimes that are going to get you into the criminal justice system and a law that's mandating you to be detained and the third law which is perora That one basically set a five-year bar. So if you're an immigrant, you have to be in the US for five years before you can receive any social benefit. And that still goes on today. And so IRIRA is key also because it created the 287G program. And this is where you start seeing the connections apart from the mandated detentions is this 287G. Um, I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with it, but basically what it created was what the immigrant community calls the Bolimira, which is local police officers that have been deputized to act as ICE to accept, act as immigration uh, law enforcement. And um, the second program that ERIRA started is E-Verify. And so E-Verify is, um, it's not a mandatory program, but basically what it does is that employers can opt into this program, and they run the legal status of every employee to see if they're legally able to work in the U.S. And so together, these, um, these three laws really set the foundations for our current immigration system. And so to talk about our modern day system, we need to think about also the distinction between immigration laws and immigrant laws, because those are two very different things. And so immigration laws um, immigration laws are those in which uh, only the government can, can, um, can pass. And so they basically say who can come in or who can come out. And it's enforced by the federal government. And these powers can be given to local and state um, officers. But then you also have immigrant laws. And immigrant laws have to do with immigrant rights. And those can be made at any level of government. So states, uh, localities, tribal governments as well, they can create these type of, um, of laws. And so when we think about these two sets of laws, we have to think about the increase or the likelihood of immigrants coming into contact with the criminal justice system. So when we think about immigration, we think of a, about it as being highly criminalized. But the fact is that scholars and research has found that immigrants are less likely to commit crimes than their native-born counterparts, and cities with higher percentages of immigrants have been associated with lower crime rates. But when you create these laws that bar people based on status from accessing human, basic human needs, like driver's licenses or even uh, renting homes or setting up utilities or enrolling kids in school, what you're doing is that you're, you're making these immigrants more exposed and more vulnerable to become in contact with law enforcement. So when you have these federal policies that when they're applied, they create this double standard of if you're a citizen and you come in contact with the criminal justice system, you go through that process. But if you're an immigrant, if you're a non-citizen, because this isn't just for undocumented people, it's people with green cards, it's people with visas. When they come in contact with the criminal justice system, they also have the possibility of becoming detained for their documentation status and then deported. And um, so the consequences are very uneven. So. <coughs> when we think about these laws, we have to think about that possibility of, it's not just restricting their movement, but also exposing them to greater um, consequences. And so what ends up happening when you create this environment where literally millions of people are criminalized, and then you couple it with laws that make detention mandatory, what you get is this rapid expansion of an immigrant detention system. And the growth of immigrant detention has been characterized by large privatization. Um, so there are currently over 200 detention centers across the, the, U.S., but ICE doesn't operate these, these, uh, centers because it's only an enforcement agency. And so what happens is that they contract out to different agencies. So for example, the Federal Bureau of Prisons, for profit prison corporations, and the U.S. Marshal Service, along with states and localities that have a stake in this. But what happens is that states and localities further subcontract these, uh, these detention centers. So in 2015, for example, 59% of the detention centers were run by state and local entities, but 90% of those were subcontracted to private um, corporations, mostly the, the Corrections Corporation of America, which now changed their name to CoreCivic, and the GEO Group. And so in that same year, 2015, Those two corporations um, ran nine out of the 10 largest immigrant detention centers in the country. And so in 2014, for example, this meant that that was about 15,000 immigrants per day that they were handling. So it's a huge amount of, um, a large amount of people. And so what's interesting about this is that both of these corporations directly lobbied federal officials for increases in the Department of Homeland Security and ICE budgets and to pass what's called the Ben mandate. And so the Ben mandate, was uh, passed by Congress in 2009 and basically tells ICE, you need to hold a minimum of 34,000 immigrants in detention. Although what we've been seeing is that they're actually holding about 44,000. And so this is not based on need. It's based on a number that corporations set to be able to um, make more money. And so when we look at these corporations again and they're spending, in 2010, Core Civic or CCA has spent 75 percent of its lobbying expenditures on the DHS Appropriations Committee. Those are the folks that are responsible for the bed mandate. And between 2006 and 2015, both of these groups, Core Civic and Geo Group, spent over 10 million just lobbying this committee on its own.
1: And so, um, and uh, we're running short on time here. That's, uh this one we still to talk about, but. Um, well, what about the people that, uh, that are trying to he- come here through a, uh, a legal path? Um, well, first, there, there is no line out there. I, I hear that a lot. Like, when you just get on the line, uh, th- there is no line. And, and the way that, that you can try to come here to the United States, it, well, it, it depends what, what it is you're seeking. Um, uh, if uh, When it comes to work visas, there's high-skill high visas, and then there's agricultural visas. And the um, with the agricultural cultural and more manual labor, when you need to apply on it uh, for it with uh, outside of the United States, and the way that it works is that uh, for anyone uh, that comes here they they need to be subject to just that one uh, specific uh, business or company that uh, hire them. So if they get if they get fired, uh, then they have to leave the country, and so this is a, sets up the system where the um, the employee is the one who decides if that person gets to stay in the country or not and um, and uh, also the uh, when it comes to high skill uh, labor, uh, the company needs to show that the uh, that they 've tried to hire people here and that the meet has has not been met um, and uh, and now with uh, recent policy changes that, that wants to be taken by the administration, uh, all immigration to this country wants to be, uh, um, they want to make it so that it's only high-skilled and people are only fluent in English. Um, and this talks about the 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 very characteristics and the values of the immigration system that we have now, which is immigration based on merit and not need. And so uh, now that we have just a little bit of an idea of what, uh, what it's like to... Um, uh, for people to, what pushes people to come to the United States, and and the the struggles that they face here, um, in through the law system and the broken immigration system that we have. Um, let's say that a that a family decides to go into sanctuary. They've been here. They um, uh, someone that is just a farmer or someone else from uh, low class, and and they've been here and they're undocumented and they have. They have exhausted all of their legal possibilities in which they can stay, uh, and in which they can seek to have immigration relief status. So, what happens when a um, when a family decides to go into into sanctuary? The purpose of, of sanctuary for it is for a family to to stay together. That 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 is absolutely the the main purpose of uh, of a congregation providing sanctuary, and avoiding the the hard economical hardships and life threatening situations. And when I'm talking about Economic hardships, I'm, I'm not talking about, like, maybe we don't get to go out, uh, you know, as, as, as often as we used to. We're talking about the, the mothers who will not be able to feed their children because there's no jobs available. Um, and that is the case with someone that's in sanctuary right now. I think Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, the mother, Ingrid, uh, is a single mother of two. And the reason why she decided to go back into sanctuary, she had been there once before, was because of the economic hardships that would be, she would be facing back in Peru. And, uh, when and when we're talking about life-threatening situations, I, we can talk about the two sanctuary cases that are going on in Albuquerque right now. Uh, one of them is a 56-year-old uh, grandma cancer survivor that is still receiving treatment, um, and she is a priority of deportation. Um, and uh, we also have Katima Abu Mohammed as well, who he served the, um, helped the U.S. military in the Gulf War and faced torture because of it, and came here as a refugee but because of two uh, minor misdemeanors, he was split into uh, deportation proceedings. And uh, if he were to go back, himself and the lawyer are absolutely sure that he would face uh, torture and death the moment he would step back into Iraq because of uh, um, uh, because of his say to the United States military against the Iraqi government. And um, something to understand when, when you're discussing about um, becoming sanctuary is that this is the last resort for a family. The absolute last option. Uh, and, and for the congregation going into sanctuary, there's always secondary purposes. Uh, for, and it's, of course, the, the purpose of keeping a family together. And the second one is speaking out against the injustice and a broken immigration system. And it's asking the government to have due process for families that can still have legal options. Um, that, that are being targeted for, for deportation, which is a lot of the cases as well, where they, they're going through some sort of uh, immigration process, but they are put into deportation proceedings, and there's still uh, legal paths that they can follow so they can stay here with their family. And um, so, what, what, so let's say that um, the, the congregation has decided to provide sanctuary after much internal talk, and it's different. It's something that I've noticed in um, talking to sanctuaries across the country is that uh, sanctuary is different in every single place. The place is going to be different. The case is going to be different. You may have a lot of support for um, for becoming a sanctuary church and provide shelter for a family, and um, but you might, may not have the living spaces. Or you may have the living spaces and you may have a, a lot of uh, opposition from the congregation. And so it's... Uh, it's it's different, and uh, it's uh, when when talking to, uh, when considering about being a sanctuary, when having those discussions, it's really important to talk to the community, uh, talk to the those that will be affected, families that will be affected. What a sanctuary look like for you? Um, we cannot make assumptions about what a sanctuary look like or what the needs are for the community that we're trying to provide it for. Um, I went to the uh, uh, National Sanctuary Conference in in Austin uh, a couple of months ago, and it was really interesting. And, and I'm not lying at this at all. But uh, the the one the main reason that uh, congregation said they were not able to provide sanctuary was because they did not have a bathroom. And this is the same across all of the United States. And so, um, so when you're thinking about the priorities that a family has uh, when they're trying to stay here to stay with their family. And to maybe not be deported to a place where their life is at risk is um, sh- that a shower is the last thing on their mind. And so uh, uh, it's talking to the people that are affected by this. It's talking to other places that have provided sanctuary. What has been their hardships? What's helped them? What are, What was their process like? Um, sanctuary carries um, a lot of responsibility and commitment. Uh, it, it's not... It's not the same as volunteering where you come in and you clock in and you clock out. Um, and you will not be detached from it. It's, it's not something that you can just think of in your head. This is not happening in your head. Um, sanctuary is visceral work. It's going to hit you right in your gut. It's going to be personal. And it's going to test your beliefs. And it's going to be testing what what you really are willing to do uh, based on, on on your beliefs. Uh, you will be at the forefront of social change in this country, if you decide to be a sanctuary for anyone. It's, uh, and, uh, and doing justice, standing up for justice, uh, hardly ever is. And, and this goes the same for, for many other issues. Um, if you decide to do, to do sanctuary, I can tell you that you're not gonna be alone. There, you will find yourself among allies and, that are fighting um, just as hard and, and just as committed uh, all over uh, the country to uh, stand up for immigrants away the way that uh, uh, the congregation decides to. Uh, when it comes to preparing the sanctuary, there's, the, the, of course, the, uh, the issue of hospitality. The, there's the preparing the space, making sure that, that there is a way to shower for someone to bath. Um, the, uh, when we were looking for a sanctuary for Kadim, he said... Guys, just give me a bucket. Like I, I that's that is literally like all I need to to uh, to to shower. He 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 worked in the um, uh, in the army base, and he said that he he would have a a bath with a with a bucket like every two weeks. Um, and uh, so that uh, I mean that's just one one thing of them. Um, there's the uh, the accompaniment part in both of the sanctuaries in Albuquerque and in other parts of the country. Uh, there's people. Um, uh, that accompany the, the person and that are also looking out that in case ICE were to show up and I'd like to know that uh, ICE has not showed up in any of the sanctuaries in the country so far. That has not yet to happen. Um, it's um, it, it goes partly because of the sensitive location memo. It is not a law. It is just a memo uh, drafted internally by ICE um, and that's as said uh, the, that immigration should, should not go and detain people in sensitive locations such as a church a hospital uh, funerals uh, schools that seems to be uh, starting to be broken um, uh, recently, and there has recently been a uh, um, uh, the, the both senators here for New Mexico are, are pushing for a for a bill that would make that a law and so uh, as you 're looking in, if into discussions of becoming a sanctuary, the instead of location memo is um, I wouldn't say that it's a guarantee that ICE is not going to show up on your door. And so that's why we have uh, people that are um, that have volunteered uh, to stand by the door, uh, that have been trained by a lawyer, uh, that are uh, that know what to do in case ICE were to show up, that uh, they are there with the right kind of warrant, a judicial warrant, and not an administrative warrant. Administrative warrant is something that um, the supervisor can just sign and give to anybody. A judicial warrant is much harder to come by, and that's what allows a, a nice agent to come into, into church property, um, which is extremely hard to do. You have to go to a judge and tell them that you want to break into a church. Um, and and so um, there's the... At, right now in in in, uh, in Albuquerque we have over 200 active volunteers that are decided that they were going to step up, and and they're uh, watching out on the door. We have 72... Um, volunteers currently doing this 28th, 28th uh, in each, each sanctuary uh, uh, with four-hour shifts and eight, or, eight hours overnight. Uh, it's thinking about the, uh, the family support as well. The, when you accept someone into sanctuary, it's not just that one person. It's the family. Um, and, and you need to think about the husband and, and the kids and, and the needs that they, they may have as well. It's, um, it's having uh, prayers and vigils and having community support for the family. Uh, there's like a pain aspect of it. There's the, um, something to keep in mind is that not all sanctuaries are public. Some, uh, some have decided, and this is where it comes to every congregation being different, where a congregation may decide to become sanctuary but not be public on it on the community because of the wishes of the congregation and the family going in. There are many private uh, uh, private sanctuaries happening all across the country. And um, so it it is really up to the decision of the family, of the person going in on on the congregation, if they want to be a public or not. Uh, Something that we did do at both of the congregations in Albuquerque is that um, we immediately reported to ICE that both of them were there so as not to to possibly be at risk of uh, facing charges of harboring. Uh, Harboring um, implies secrecy, and once you let ICE know that they're there, uh, there is no secrecy. They 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 know where they are, and and they can come in at, at the time that they want to. There's the uh, need to take into consideration the uh, the legal team. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, it's it's very important for someone to have uh, a lawyer. And in the in the way that both centuries worked in in Albuquerque, so we had uh, we met previously with uh, the lawyer, and and we we all had to have a sort of timeline of how long this can last. And something to keep in mind is that they can they can last for over a year. And the uh, the timeline for uh, Emma, when, the first one that went into sanctuary in Albuquerque, was of three months, uh, she's now 10 months in. And the congregation needs to have the um, absolute clarity that this can go on for longer than what the law expects. The immigration system has, uh, by its nature, is bureaucratic and long, and you just have no idea what can happen in, in a case. And there's so much discretion and um, and individual agents that are looking at the case. Uh, there's the strategy team, the organizing team, the communications. If you do decide to be a public sanctuary, as it was with the case in Albuquerque with Emma, um, have uh, there's many resources that, uh, that a congregation can tap into, just world service, American ser- friend service committee that can help out with um, how media strategy works and in correlation with both the strategy that the lawyer is trying to pull legally, and so they work in tandem together. Um, It's uh, the organizing team in trying to find support from the community uh, and uh, advocating through uh, via local uh, uh, leadership elected officials that they support your case. It's trying to find uh, support through the city council, through the mayor, to senators. Uh, Both, uh, actually, no, it's not both. It's uh, Senator Heinrich and... um, Congresswoman Michelle and Grisham are working to support the uh, the sanctuary cases in in Albuquerque. Um, what are the challenges for uh, for doing sanctuary? Well, of course, it's hard for the for the family uh, doing the sanctuary itself. Um, there's the resources, although that part it, it's it, it's amazing to me uh, when the the first sanctuary, the uh, which is a uh, a Quaker congregation, they are a congregation of about thirty active members. So how do you uh, how do you have someone in accompaniment every someone taking shifts every four hours? How do you take care of the food? How do you take care of the of the laundry? There's so many little aspects to it when someone is living there that, that you don't account for, and so they did it on a decision of faith. It was their faith that it was calling them to do this, and it was their faith that that told them that uh, the needs will be met, and they were. And uh, there were about two hundred volunteers that that showed up in the first two months, and. Um, Wherever you're coming from, from a position of morality and, um, or, or faith, uh, it, I can tell you that the congregations that I've seen now have not had a lack of resources because the community is willing to step up and the community is eager to do something uh, about the immigration system and, and to do justice for somebody. Uh, it's the um, it, power dynamics, and, and, and that's something kind of tricky to talk about, uh, something that, that, um, that I think only someone that, that provides sanctuary is able to talk about, but I see the, um, the dynamics of, um, of someone that has, that has been provided sanctuary. is, is really grateful, and um, if there's any needs that the person has, they, often they have trouble saying so, because they, they feel so indebted to the, uh, to the congregation. Um, there's, of course, feelings of hopelessness uh, in in one of the century cases in in, in uh, Tucson. Allison has just came back from a from a meeting with the ICE director nationally, and and they and the the ICE director told her, "Look, we've been through this many times. Look, nothing's going to happen. We're not going to do anything for the case." And so she was thinking that she was she's been there for ten months, eleven months, and to what face is she going to come back with, telling? Telling the uh, the person in sanctuary that that things are not looking good, and it's when the um, when the person uh, is is facing hardship. And how do you how do you tell that person that they need to wait more months, uh, or maybe five or six more months? It's um, that are some of the challenges that are involved with sanctuary. The what are the risks? Um, there's the um, legal. Um, the The only case that I've seen. That I remember today, where uh, so many century was taken to a, um, uh, where there were uh, criminal charges against them where 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 in the 80s, 80s. Nothing recent that I that I that I can remember. Uh, it's really important to um, talk to a lawyer and and see what the risks are for providing sanctuary uh, to someone that's being prosecuted by ICE. But I I have to. Uh, highlight that the decision, the final decision to be a sanctuary cannot come from a lawyer. It has to be from somewhere else. It has to be through faith, or it has to be through morality, morality or compassion, but it cannot be through a lawyer. It has to come from somewhere, from within. And, um, and the, I, I can talk about, I, and, I were, and I feel we we're saying benefits, uh, but the blessings of it, it um, is the community engagement, it's getting to know so many people. Uh, people say do we really need 200 people to help just one family when we can be doing this somewhere else um, to help other families. And the way that I see it is that, yeah, you, you, can, you can think about 300 people needed to do century, or you can think about 200 people being changed by that one person that's been in century. And let me tell you that all of those people that have done century have. They come uh, as supporters of immigration uh, doing the shifts, and they come out strong advocates in their own communities and their own congregations, pushing for a, a humane legal reform and to change in the system in which people don't need um, a sanctuary. And And sanctuary is... It, 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 I guess my final thoughts is that sanctuary is not the goal. Uh, we, we're not looking for... I, I hope that Sanctuary wasn't needed. It, it's extremely hard seeing a family sit, seen, uh, being in a sort of prison that they chose to go because that that is the best option that they had at that moment. Um, it's uh, So if century is not the goal, then what can you do? What can you do to help so that you're not becoming a sanctuary? But um, get to know your immigrant community uh, here in town and in around... Uh, make sure that there's local nets of protection for the immigrant families. That make sure that, that uh, someone who gets stopped for going five miles over the speed limit is not going to be in deportation proceedings the next day because police is, is cooperating with ICE. It's uh, working at a city and state level, being present in your in uh, city council meetings with the mayor, um, at the state level, be involved with the senators, with the with the uh, gov- uh, with the governor election. Um, realize that advocating for immigrant rights is not an easy job, and going into it half interested is not going to make any changes. It requires commitment, especially in, in times in the times that we're living in uh, now. And uh, and my my last thought I know we have uh, it's sent ten ten after ten after already, but it, it's providing sanctuary for a family has been um, priceless for the families that have been there. And um, that, that is what keeps us going. We, we don't give strength to the families that are there. It's the families that gives us strength to keep going to the endless meetings and keep advocating with people that, that don't want to listen to us. It's it, it's really remarkable that the people facing the, the hardships are, are the ones that give us the hope and faith to keep going. And um, I wish I had time for questions and answers, but I, I guess we can... Uh,
0: So I think we do have time, even though uh, forum time is technically over. So if you guys are okay with a questions, that would be great. Yeah,
1: please, any questions that any of you may have, uh, I'd be happy to answer them.
0: The use of the mic is important for audio purposes.
2: Why is it so bad for Mexicans to go back to their home country?
1: Yeah, there's a there's different um, uh, uh, reasons for that. Um, the and it, it depends on 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 the part of the country that they are coming from as well. Uh, in in the southern part of uh, uh, of Mexico, you have a lot of the cartels that have taken over um, in uh, organized crime that have taken over uh, law enforcement. Law enforcement is working with the uh, with. Organized crime in there, and they are based off of extortion, and uh, that's where a lot of the um, uh, uh, drugs that are being processed, coming from Colombia, are happening, and methamphetamine, and and so um, and you know, which uh, I like to say that the consumers of that are are the United States. The United States is the biggest consumer of drugs, and um, and and so it's hard for the people that are coming back that are facing violence uh, if they uh, if they don't cooperate with uh, their they're the cartels and um, they, they face uh, torture or death. Uh, anybody that's working for the government, um, the economic hardships, um, a, they, there is no working opportunity. Uh, I would say the biggest, um, uh, the, those are the biggest two reasons. There's violence, a lot of violence in the country. And um, just talking about my own experience I know that the place where I come from, and the and the and my family that I keep talking to in Mexico, the local law enforcement, the police, um, they work for the for the Sinaloa cartel, and uh, we and I could tell you so many stories about that. But it's uh, there there is no hope at all to for law enforcement to help you in Mexico if anything were to happen. Uh, only seven percent of crimes are reported in Mexico because of the corruption of law enforcement, and uh, only four percent of that seven percent ever come to fruition so um, yeah it's see it, it, there, there's I think there's many reasons and it's a complex issue but economical and, uh, and and violence I would say are the two main reasons for why people cannot go back to Mexico
0: I have a question and I don't know if anybody else does because I realize we we're short on time um, so your coalition the New Mexico Faith Coalition for Immigrant justice um, what are you specifically organizing? The volunteers for the sanctuary church churches, and what other um, support do you provide? And what I know you've given you, uh, us some ideas of mm-hmm. things that we can do and continue to do. But what can you tell us about what you're currently doing?
1: Yeah, so uh, sanctuary is just one of the projects that the New Mexico Faith Coalition is working with. Uh, we also do uh, core accompaniment. Um, there has been reports of. Um, of ICE showing up in, in, in courts. And we truly believe in access to justice for, for everyone. And so um, the, there was a, an infamous case about six months ago where a woman was dragged out of the bathroom by ICE agents in, in a court. And so um, we provide um, uh, accompaniment for people that want to go to courts or, um, or maybe an ICE check-in or police departments that need to file a report to police. Um, and uh, where and these people have been trained by a lawyer, and they're there to document any um, any civil rights violations and to provide um, fellowship to that person. Uh, we also uh, we're working closely with the uh, New Mexico Immigrant Law Center, in which they're going twice a week to the civil law detention center outside in Grants. And the uh, people that are looking for political asylum, which it, it's virtually non-existent under, under the new administration, but the few that do come out of the um, out of the hundreds uh, that are there uh, once or twice a week, they are dropped off in a in a local dirt parking lot. So we have people that go and pick them up, and we find a place so for for them to stay in Albuquerque. Um, We have direct service where we have uh, people that donate their services. It might be retired lawyers or social service workers that are willing to help with help families navigate uh, community resources. Um, uh, Those are some of the major projects that we're working with. And, and yeah, we, we, we do handle our volunteers as well.
0: Any other questions? Um, a lot of the pressures that are forcing
1: people to come north
2: and not look back, essentially your home was burned behind you, are the result of the war on drugs policy. Mm -hmm. If the United States were to adopt a policy similar to the ones that most of the nations of Europe have adopted to cope with the with the drug problem.
1: We wouldn't have this pressure. Yeah, and and that's something that Melina uh, had uh, had mentioned that if we if we want to change uh, immigration policy within the United States, we need to change uh, American foreign policy. Those are not uh, independent and they 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 go hand in hand. And I can speak from my own experience that um, uh, I'm grateful that I didn't have to escape from violence. Uh, but we did have to sell everything that we had. There is nothing for us to go back to uh, and because it's, it's not easy to make it here and I, it, it, it's truly an experience that I cannot uh, fully share how it feels like selling everything you have, everything to to look for a dream that there's going to be better opportunities here.